Welcome, I'm Natasha. And I'm Brie. On Beyond the Marley, we bring you exclusive interviews with some of the biggest names in the dance team world. Each episode features an engaging conversation with top professionals who share tips and tricks for success and powerful stories that will leave you feeling inspired. Whether you are a seasoned pro or just getting started in the dance team world, Beyond the Marley podcast has something for you. Today, I am so excited to introduce our listeners to one of the most special people in my life, my soul brother, James Silvis. James is the real deal. There is no BS. We are going to get real today. Nothing's holding us back. I'm honored to call him my mentor, my best friend, my brother. We are going to dive deep. So hold on. We are going to get uncomfortable, but we're going to all grow together. Absolutely. I met James, okay, I think it's been at least 10 years. Yeah, that's a long time. Because I've been at Coronado for nine and it was before that. So um, I met James 10, maybe even more years ago when he was working with the dance team that I was volunteering with. He has since become a great friend and he works with the high school team who I work with here in Vegas. And he's helped our team go from being like a solid, we make finals every year team to now having four titles under their belt. And I give a lot of that credit to James. He knows how to take a team from whatever level they're at and really help them reach their fullest potential and not even them reach their fullest potential, but enjoy the process and every step of the way. Um, I've seen his journey over the last decade and I've seen him get those awesome giant clients like Nike, MGM International, Caesars, and the list goes on. And he's worked with some of the top of the top dance teams. So who is James Silvis? He's an international mindset specialist and peak performance coach who teaches athletes, leaders, high-performing teams, how to clear their minds, break through fear, and optimize their performance, Um, as well as just enhance the quality of their personal and their professional lives, whatever that means for those individuals. He graduated with a bachelor's degree from UNLV, where he was inspired to pursue this work by his faculty member and four-time world-renowned mental performance coach, Dr. Mark, Dr. G, how do you say his name? Guadagnoli. It's always a challenge. (laughs) James is also the founder of Be That 1%, a movement, a brand, and a podcast that inspires others to live live life on their terms, overcome obstacles, and do what 99% of people won't. His podcast is ranked in the top 1% globally and has reached over 130 countries. He's worked with over 8,000 people from around the globe. And I mentioned this earlier, but some of his client base includes companies like Nike, Caesars, MGM International, Core Power Yoga, Dance Team Wise. He's worked with UNLV, Cincinnati, Coronado Cougarettes, my team, um, Seton, Boise. Who am I missing on there? Uh, you got some teams in Seattle. Shout out to uh, the Kangs out there in Washington, holding it down, state champions. Uh, and then a few other Redmonds and um, East Lake over there in Seattle. And Studio 360. Yeah, and Studio 360. <laughs> <laughs> the list goes on. Um, so we're super honored to have him on today. And You guys, our listeners are in for such a treat, and I cannot wait to get as much knowledge out of you as we can and in this podcast for our listeners. Let's do it. I'm I'm honored to be here. Thank you for that intro, and 
you know, as much as you think I've been able to support both of you, I also want to say that you did a lot of the work as well. And it was a collaborative effort. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and take all that credit. I think it was us being willing to create that culture together that uh, resulted in the championships and just the deeper relationships that were formed with the athletes that they're going to carry on for the rest of their lives. So thank you for the opportunity. Happy to be here. Oh, we're so excited to have you. And we've been looking forward to this interview for months and months and months. And we're so excited it finally worked in all three of our schedules to get you in today. Well, we're going to start with our first question. It's the question that we start everybody off with. And we just like to dive deep right away. So we want to know, with all your incredible successes that you've had, what has been the biggest struggle to get to where you are today? Uh, the struggle is, there's a couple struggles. I think one is when you're a goal-oriented person, the, you constantly want to keep growing and see what's next. And that could be very burdensome for those that you're closest to. Uh, my wife has been super supportive in my pursuit of my passion, which is what I love. And with that comes a lot of time and resources that I dedicate to try and cultivate a level of mastery in what I do. And that requires sacrifice of being away from my family, traveling a lot out of the year, uh, being in this office and wrestling with ideas to help the people that I serve. And so uh, sometimes it feels like <laughs> I'm dedicating a lot of time and not a lot of people can understand, but I'm tr I trust the process that as I devote that time, energy, resources, that not only am I bettering my life and becoming a better father and a better husband, but also being able to provide service to people outside of me. So it's bigger than me. Um, but it's balance, you know, I, I being a father of two, it's, it's hard and the, the guilt can, can pile up, but conversation after conversation, my wife and I have found some, some good ways to manage it. I don't know if it'll ever go away, but as of right now, I'm managing. <laughs> Kudos to you because the fact that you're even putting that effort forward to find that balance says a lot and is more than what a lot of people do. So tell us, how did you get into the dance world? Right? Like when you first started Be That One Percent, did you ever think that you would end up such a highly sought after performance coach for dance? No, no. <laughs> Honest answer, no. Uh, the only, the way that I got into it was uh, I didn't even know I wanted to do this until about 10 years ago. You know, I, I had played sports my whole life. I had been in leadership kind of positions on those sports teams and kind of learned a way to communicate at the right time, saying the right thing and, and learning how to motivate, understand, listen, and challenge people. And that skill set just continued to grow from the age of, you know, six, seven, eight, all the way up until college. And it wasn't until I met Dr. G and was in his class that he began to share principles around psychology, neuroscience, the power of the mind and the body. And I became like literally obsessed on that knowledge. I was like, wow, if I can learn more about myself, I become more valuable. And as a result of becoming more valuable, I get to help other people in many different situations. And so 
in college, I thought I was going to go to physical therapy school. And that was my road because it was closest thing to sports. And I didn't want to play any sports anymore. And got into that industry for three years, decided that wasn't for me. From there, I went to the Las Vegas industry and worked in the clubs for three years. And that was a wild experience. I've seen things that I don't wish other people to see. Uh, and But that was that was unique. And it was there that I actually got the opportunity to speak to the staff and at, at Republic, at, this is a day club at MGM. And it was there that I had a speech that then was recorded, went viral within the MGM properties. And that was the first time that I thought, man, I could share information about myself, about what we're capable of as human beings. And it can resonate with someone to the point where people can come up to me and say, you need to do this for a living. And so that was kind of the beginning of me thinking, well, if I were to do this outside of Wet Republic as an actual profession, what would that look like? So I just started kind of mapping that out. And I stayed at Wet Republic for two of those three years. And at the end of that second year, I decided to go off on my own and start door knocking and like pitching my services in Las Vegas. And that was a long six months and nothing came of it. I questioned whether I should keep going. I was, I making the right choice. I was 24 years old, walking into these businesses, trying to like convince them that they should hire me to train their employees and boost morale and increase sales. And I got rejection after rejection. Cops called on me. People told me I'll never be successful. You, the list goes on. But it was in that time frame that I reached back out to my high school, Foothill, uh, where I went to school, and I got in, in contact with the basketball coach. And I pitched a sports psychology program to the basketball team, who was at that time really, really good. And being that he knew me from high school and wanted to give me a shot, he said yes. And we, my, myself and another guy that I was partnered with at the time, um, did this mental and physical eight-week program. And that had success. Like the coach was really happy with it to the point where he told the dance coach, Lana at Foothill, who's top 10 every year in the country for dance in high school. She was like, okay, it's working for basketball. Let's see what it is over here. Come work for, with us. And I was like, okay. And so Foothill being that they had been proven track record for a long time, dance community, super small, um, started working with them. And from there, it branched off into our review here in Vegas. Then obviously Bree, that's how you and I got connected. And then it went to Seton. And then from Seton, it went to Washington and Washington back to, to University of Cincinnati, UNLV. Like then it just all just kind of started domino effect from there. And that's just one staple of the business, but that's how dance got included uh, initially. It's so wild, like the connections and how, you know, I think of the only reason I know you is through Jill at Seton and like, shout out to Jill for being the best matchmaker, but just saying like, <laughs> like it's the dance world is so small, but it's so interesting just to hear you say your, like talk about your story. And what came up for me was at throughout that whole process, how did imposter syndrome, did it come up? How did you get through it? Because I feel like imposter syndrome is something that dancers and coaches in the dance world really struggle with the comparison, right? You're comparing your body, your skills to the person standing next to you. You're also staring in a mirror like four to eight hours a day, depending on the level of training you're doing. So at any time in that whole process, how did you battle imposter syndrome? 
Yeah. Well, if you go back to that time period where I left Wet Republic and I was on my own trying to build my business from scratch, no one really to kind of look to to help me through that process because I didn't know anyone who had done that. So it was a lot of trial and error. And when you're when it feels like you're alone in the process, building something for the first time that no one really can relate to that you don't even know what it is yet. That's like fertile breeding ground for imposter syndrome. And I think there's two ways to look at it. I think initially, because I was so young and because it was so new, it did take a toll. Like there were no results coming in. You know, it was no after no after no, long days, walking in the heat, questioning, you know, living in my head. And I didn't really have anyone to talk about it with because at that time, no one was really in, at my friend circle, no one was really building their business. There were, there weren't very entrepreneurial. They had those tendencies, but they weren't building something. So it was like, okay, I only have myself to kind of work through this stuff with. Um, I wasn't as open as I am now about talking about things. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> and, and so in my mind, it was like, you're, you're too young. Like they're right. They're, they're, they're kind of laughing at you in a way in their own heads because you're so young thinking you could teach a 45, 50, 60 year old executive something. Right. And it beat me down for a while, like three months at a time. Like the first three months were, I was pretty high spirited cause I was excited. And then, but month three to month six, it started to take the toll. Right. And right when I was about to quit, I was like, maybe I, let me, they're right. I am too young. That's where a philosophy entered my mind. And, and that's where I tapped into a purpose bigger than me. Like I've always been service-based, but it was, I, I, I didn't know how to articulate it. Like, yes, I want to help people, but I didn't know how I wanted to help people. And so it was around that time where be that 1%, do what 99% of the people want to came into my mind. It was this simple philosophy that like dropped into my gut and really produced a level of emotion that started a fire that wasn't there before. It was like, I don't want to be a statistic. I don't want to be someone that says they're going to do something. And when it gets hard, they stop. So we have to keep going. Okay. But why are we going to keep going? Well, what else are you going to do, James? Like we already tried sales. We already tried the law side. We already tried fitness. We already tried all these other things. And None of them resonated as much as what the idea of this could be has. So it was a mixture of having something that I could remind myself of in hard times, which was be that 1%, attached to a purpose bigger than me so that I didn't stay in my head, which is what most people do. And the purpose brought me out of the fear. The fear was still there, but it brought me out of the fear. And so I think I transitioned from like saying, Oh, I'm not enough. Poor me. I can't do anything in this situation to no, I'm not going to be a statistic. I, I'm here to make a difference. I'm here to do something bigger than myself and leave a legacy. I'm going to get that out there and keep knocking. And it was within literally two weeks of me having that like kind of, I don't epiphany moment, if you will, that I met a corporate person, like someone that worked at a corporate business, a timeshare company that ended up bringing me in and I replaced my income at Wet Republic at that company working there three days a week. And I became the in-house performance coach for four years, working with 175 of their employees responsible for their culture training and development as a company. And so 
I think there's just two ways to view it. Like you can look at it as like beat yourself up or you can look at it as like you're entering new territory. Of course, you're not going to be prepared. Of course, you haven't built the skill yet. And that's okay. Day by day, what skills can we begin to cultivate one step at a time and, and just reminding yourself of that process? I love that. And thank you for sharing that story. I think that's really important for people to hear other people who've had to work through that imposter syndrome. Something I grabbed from that was definitely the knowing your why, right? Once you're like, okay, I want to make an impact. I want to make a difference. I want to serve. That helped you get through that. Um, How can that translate to dance teams getting through their imposter syndrome? What advice would you give a team who's struggling with that? Yeah. So I think a big issue that I see with a lot of specifically dance athletes is they're so quick to find negatives because of the nature of dance. They're being judged on, you know, specific criteria and coaches are uh, really good at pointing out where the faults are, where the failures are, because those can potentially be deductions. And that's why you can lose at a tournament or a competition. So embedded into the sport is a heightened level of what you're doing wrong, right? And so over time, you start an athlete out six, seven, eight years old. And over time, as they love dance, it starts out of this creative, artistic uh, expression of who they are over time. If they're not careful, you just start developing a way of viewing the world of like, what problems am I making? Gosh, I'm always like behind the eight ball. I'm always making a mistake here. It's easy to get in that mindset. And that's kind of how we are wired naturally. Like we're not wired for greatness. We're wired for survival. And survival is all about finding the potential threats and minimize them. Translated to dance, what mistakes am I making and how do I fix it? Right. And so it's easy to skip over how far you've come, how much you've progressed and what you have done that you're proud of. And so I think one way of com- combating imposter syndrome is remembering all the things that you've done that you're proud of, almost like a confidence catalog in a way. Because what that, it, so there's two parts of this. One is a like proud moments. What have you done in your past that you look back on and like, wow, I, I can't believe I did that, or I'm proud of myself that I did that. It could be that you made the team. It could be that you won a competition. It could be that you got a certain grade in your class that you're really proud of. It could be that you did some other sport and did really well in it. But finding things that build an identity that isn't based on mistakes, but rather your resourcefulness to find and create wins. Part one. Part two is cultivating a sense of gratitude because gratitude shifts the scarcity thinking, the what's wrong, what I don't have, what everyone else is doing that I'm not into what I do have, where I come from, what I stand for, and what I have access to myself, to me right now in this moment. And if we start thinking that way, we start maximizing more of what's happening now which is really all there is, and we start building a more successful, uh, intentional future. Oh, so good. Um, I had to write this down as you were talking. So for anyone listening, like get out your notes and your paper and write it down. But like not (laughs) wired for greatness, we're wired for survival. And it's so true. Like it's so true. And like we're, what we're doing is going against our human nature. And so it's, 
so important as a coach to be intentional. And one of our questions to you was going to be, how do we successfully build confident dancers? But I feel like in a way you just answered that, uh, that's how you do it. So yeah, that's definitely one way, right? Like there's something that Michael Gervais talks, he's talks about, he just wrote a new book. I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the title, but he used to be the sports psychologist for the Seattle Seahawks. And he has this concept called uh, like how you base your identity, what you base your identity off of. It's like performance-based identity or purpose-based identity. And if your performance-based identity is, is if that's how it's set up, then when you're high, you're high and you're good. When you're low, you're terrible. And so that creates a very inconsistent mm -hmm. performance. When it's purpose-based, you show up to practice even when you don't want to, which happens more times than people think, and you put in the reps. And when you put in the reps, you start stacking evidence that you're the type of person that shows up when they feel like it and when they don't feel like it, which creates a level of conviction no matter what the challenge is, you're gonna show up to the challenge, right? And, and then there's this quote that kind of fits in with this, is like, you don't get confidence by shouting affirmations in the mirror, you get confidence by having a stack of undeniable proof that you are who you say you are. And that comes from Alex Hermosi. And I love that quote because what it teaches us or what it reminds us to do is if you want to be confident, if you want to be a person that people look at and like are inspired by, respected, then you have to one, do the things that are hard, do the things that most people don't do. And you have to be aware that you're doing them. And as you're doing them, file them away as evidence. Because you may not have evidence right now, but the evidence can start off by you putting in the work. And then when you put in the work, you become someone who does the work. And when you do the work consistently, over time, you get skilled. So then you become a person who's skilled and who is hardworking. And then when you have more skill, you get better results. Then you become a person who gets results. But it all comes from the action you're taking compounded over time that originated with intention to do so. Oh, man. Again, just dropping the truth bombs. I said, I told everyone we we're going to get real. We just got real. Um, I'm over yeah. here taking notes too, trying to listen and write it all down. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so one thing going off of that, what are some common themes with the teams that you're working with that you see that hurt teams the most? Yeah. Uh, lack of proactivity. So athletes waiting for a coach to tell them what to do rather than rather than them taking initiative and and doing it, whether that's coordinating a team bonding thing, whether that's getting in the gym early, whether that's, you know, rallying everybody up after practice to go over like good, better house, or, you know, what are we doing that we need to correct? Or what are we doing right that we're proud of, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, negative self-talk, right? When pressure hits, when pressure is at its highest, uh, what's the story? What's the narrative that's going on? Most times it's don't fail or I hope I don't mess up or some version of that. And that creates a very weak foundation that creates a very like a uh, hope-based 
performance as opposed to like confident based, right? Uh, I'd say that that's probably, and then and then comparison to the point where it becomes you think of yourself in a more inferior way because of what you're paying attention in your teammates or in other teams that then affects how you show up to practice. Beautiful. So how do we as coaches help athletes overcome or help teams, right, overcome those things that hold them back, the negative self-talk, the comparison? Um, What was the other one that you said that you listed out? And taking, getting your team to take initiative instead of just waiting for coach to say what to do. Yeah. So let's take them one by one, right? Uh, Taking initiative. Uh, Most teams have, understand the importance of having a leadership team, right? There, There are certain athletes that every year kind of emerge, become respected amongst their peers for whatever reason, could be skill, could be hard work, could be character, you know, whatever. And there's such a missed opportunity between how the coaches are communicating with the leaders that if it were to be structured, maybe a a bit different, the leaders would feel more empowered to take risks as opposed to feeling like they have to meet with the coach in order to get the insight or the right answer and then act on it. And so this... To get better at this, it starts before the season happens, right? So we'll, we'll we'll talk ideal scenario, and then we'll talk like, I'm listening to it, but I'm halfway through the season. What can I do now? <laughs> so ideally, you would have this leadership team formed before the season starts, and you will have done some sort of sit down with the leadership team and discussed topics like, what is leadership? What values do we want? our team to be, you know, rooted in what are what are our standards and how do we plan on holding ourselves and our team accountable, right? And walking through where they feel comfortable with that process and where they don't feel comfortable. That's like a starter, right? And then as the season progresses, you're having constant check-ins with the leadership team, getting a pulse on what the team is doing, what problems they're seeing, what behaviors we're wanting to course correct. And then you're giving feedback to the leaders based on how they're showing up in practice and, and having them give feedback to each other. So there's always a constant source of feedback coming in so skill can develop. What I see a lot of times is that there's too long of a gap between meeting one with a leadership team and meeting two. It could go anywhere from three weeks to, to a month and a half, way too long. Too much happens. Ideally, it'd be weekly, um, and and the and the and the coach not being the source of talking in those meetings, but having the leaders kind of work through their potential solutions based on whatever problems are coming up, and the coach observing and kind of pointing in the right direction. Because a lot of times, coaches will try and just solve the problem because it's faster, it's easier, and Mostly it's that. And so if the coach can be a little bit more patient and ask more questions and guide the athletes to the answers, not only will they be training these leaders how to think, but they'll be empowering those leaders to take action and trust their voices, trust their instincts 
to solve problems in the moment, as opposed to waiting a week or two to tell the coach. And then you have to do something about something that already happened and has already like grown legs and become this hairy, big monster. So, uh, that's kind of, and then you, that just continues to progress over the season. If you haven't done that, uh, then after listening to this episode, get your leadership team together and figure out and, and ask them like, okay, I apologize for not having meetings before, but starting now, I want to ensure that you as leaders are developing the skills necessary that go beyond dance. I'm always a fan of building skills that not just support them in sports, but support them in life. And so when we make the skills that they're learning bigger than dance, it takes on a deeper meaning. And the deeper the meaning, the faster the learning. So they'll see more value in the meetings as opposed to it just being sport related, which can cause maybe too, too big of a responsibility or too, too siloed. When it becomes life, then it, it, it's like, okay, if I learn this, it's going to help me in all kinds of other areas too. So there's just more of an incentive to want to be a part of and engage in those meetings. Have those leaders exchange feedback on where they can grow, where they can get better, and and monitor their growth, monitor their progress. And when you see growth as a coach, notice it right away and give them that feedback instantly so that one, they know you're paying attention and two, they can course correct and not build bad behaviors that you then have to cor- like combat later on down the so line. Good. Oh, bro. So good. So something that came up for me was you're talking about like coaches being able to ask more questions and have these leadership teams and uh, just like it be intentional. But what do the coaches need to do their own work? Like, what do you see? Like, cause I know when you and I started working together, it didn't start first with working with my team. It was working with me and yeah. helping me have more self-awareness and helping me like as a coach hone in my skills so that I can show up better for my team. So talk on that, on like what skills as a coach that if I'm listening to this right now and I'm like, okay, I get what he's saying, but like what skills as a coach do I need to have and do I need to work on so that I can show up for my team? Yeah. Well, this goes for any leader. Right. But specifically for dance, I think you what I've noticed is you can only lead someone as far as you've gone. Right. So if, if, for example, if you're trying to teach one of your athletes how to manage their emotions, but every time you show up to practice, your emotions are all over the place. There's incongruence there. So what you say and what you do do not match. Right. That's absence of integrity when you deliver any sort of feedback or you're teaching any sort of thing integrity is like the subtle uh emotional juice that comes out because you're not teaching something you think is important but aren't doing you're teaching something that is important that you are doing so there's a there's a different level of conviction confidence congruence that is felt in the words shown in the body and overall just heard differently. So 
the first step is always self-awareness. You want more social awareness, you gotta have more self-awareness because you can only notice what you notice inside. It's always an internal game. So the first skill to build is self-awareness. What type of coach are you? What type of coach do you want to be? What are your strengths as a coach? Are you the type that can build relationships easy? Are you the, the kind of hard ass? Like, what is your typical go-to style? How is that working? <laughs> and then based on who you want to be as a coach, where's the gap and what skill needs to be learned? Usually, the common things that I see is that the coach is, a f is nervous or afraid to give direct feedback because they don't want to hurt feelings to potentially deal with parents or they don't want to cause unnecessary tension to where an athlete then contemplates quitting the team. So they reserve saying feedback that the athlete needs and the team needs to grow effectively. And then I said that that's probably the, the big one. Um, I'm trying to think of other examples that could be here. And then the other one I think is just listening. I think a lot of coaches think that just because they're the coach, they always have to have the right thing to say or they always need to be the ones to talk. I think it's actually the opposite. I think they should be the ones that talk the most because as they talk, they learn and you, you get more information that helps you understand them more, that helps you ask the right question or say the right thing because it's personalized and customized to the team or to the individual who the coach is speaking with. So it's a mixture of like noticing your triggers as a coach. Your triggers are your teachers, right? And then listening to your team past the words. How did those words come to be? What is the backstory on these athletes? What sports have they played before? What are their, con what are their uh, you know, mental stories in their head that I can ask them about? Maybe they don't know, but maybe they do. And it's just like creating little documents inside of your brain about each athlete that then gives you a whole database of information that you can use each time you can love that so you said awareness as well as listening more are there any other with the best of the best teams dance teams or corporate teams that you've worked with what are other um trends that you see that those leaders have in common they're they're strategic so they they have a they have a game plan they they know the the sport really well and usually a good coach is one who danced in the past so they they have an understanding of you know what it is like to be in the athlete's position but i don't think they leverage that information enough to the point of putting yourself back in the shoes of a high school or collegiate athlete i think sometimes they can get so removed and be you know, surrounded by different types of adults in their, their life that they forget to act, to be more childlike or to be more young adult-ish in their thought process. And so they can tend to overcomplicate, give too much, not give enough because I, they're not thinking about, you know, what their athletes are going through. That's one. Um, so I think it's just a, a frame of like, where are they at? I think they they do that, but not enough. Um, but if I'm thinking about a skill that they have, another skill that they have, they're good recruiters. <laughs> they can sell the program really well. They believe in the program, which I think is critical, right? Like 
how are you going to get the best answers if you don't believe you have the best program? So there, there's an embedded belief in like, we are the team. And do you want to be a part of this? So they're really good at selling it. They're really good at believing in, in it. Um, so there's like a passion, I guess, for the team, the sport, and what's going to happen over the course of the season. And how about their communication style? That's all over the place. Um, like with humans, you know, but I'm trying to think if there's, I'm thinking of three teams specifically and two, two of the three have more people pleasing tendencies. So they're more agreeable. They're more open, which is good for building initial relationships, but hard when it's comes time to deliver critical feedback. And then there's one that's more of like on the harder side, like drill sergeant type that also needs to work on the relationship building side. So you you can drive performance to a point on either sides of those spectrums, but at some point you have to become a multi-dimensional coach as opposed to just one trick. Because that one trick can only get you so far. That might get you a national championship if you do it intentionally and you're like you go all in on it. But to create repeated success, I think you need a lot of tools. And that only comes with an open mind and a willingness to explore new ways of doing things, which is hard for people to do because if it worked once, it'll work again. But generations change, athletes change, dynamics within the team change. What happened last year with that team that was worked really well is not going to be the same for this team. So there's a flexibility that needs to be cultivated in communication because people are different. You know, there are some similarities with people, but they're, they're different too. And that needs to be observed and noticed. Yeah, that's so good. That's, you know, every, all, all of us want to succeed and want to get that championship going after that first championship, but the greatest of the great are the ones that can do it over and over and over again. And Mm -hmm. when you think of the, Minnesotas and the Ohio States and um, the other uh, programs that are consistently getting those national championships, something is different in their program. And that is what James works with is having that, that greatness. Greatness comes from repeated, that repeated success. So one part of that success and that can be, is something that every single coach is up against every single season and at different points of the season and especially now with mental health and um, what our young people are facing is anxiety. So we see anxiety in different ways, but I want to specifically talk about how can a coach help with pre-performance anxiety and what do you coach? You've worked with teams, you've gone, you've traveled to nationals with teams before. So take us through how can a coach help with pre-performance anxiety that we commonly see? Yeah. Well, most times anxiety comes from anticipating future moments, usually based on past failures or past hurts. So an athlete fell at one point or did something they weren't proud of or you know, didn't measure up in some way. And that resulted in judgment, embarrassment, failure, whatever. And next time they go to attempt that trick skill or whatever, 
they are referring back to that moment. And so that moment kind of is stuck in time on loop. So the coach would need to understand that that's what's happening. There is a focal point on something that needs to shift, right? And the athlete needs to now then be aware of that. And once that awareness is created, there also needs to be a belief in the coach and in the athlete that a new focal point can be created and utilized. And that new focus point might be, I'm not my past, you know, I am fill in the blank. And whatever that fill in the blank is, creating action items and metrics to chart progress so that that identity can build and that can become the new focal point. So there needs to be some sort of analysis on all athletes on the team and the co and coach getting an understanding of like, where's everyone mentally, where's everyone physically, skill-wise, uh, maybe where's everyone physically shape-wise, like how good a shape they are in, which is why having physical metrics, I think, are really great, tracking over the season too, because um, the stronger the body, the stronger the mind. So I think it takes an awareness of that, shifting focus, creating a different story. And like the best teams make practice really hard. And I think there's a resistance in a lot of the coaches that I've seen in the past where it's like, I don't want to work them too hard for whatever reason. And I think they need to... Th there needs to be a different association with pain. Like there's magic in pain. There's a beauty in pain. There deep bonds and trust can be formed in pain. And the pain that I'm referring to is like work, like challenging yourself trick after trick, set after set, workout after workout, and constantly bringing that message into the culture of like, you're tired, good. You're fatigued, great. You can barely breathe right now because you push yourself to the limit, amazing. Like there needs to be reinforcement in hard because as a culture, I don't, I think we're getting away from that. It's like, oh, don't make it too hard, right? And it's like, we need to increase our capacity to hold pressure and you can only hold pressure if you go through some sort of pain. It can't all be light and airy and fairy and like, oh, that was a great practice. We didn't really challenge ourselves, so everyone hit it. It's like there should be failure in practice, quote unquote failure. There should be mess ups. And those mess ups should be like, great, you're getting closer to hitting it. This is how you've progressed. Amazing. And over time, they learn that it's okay to mess up in practice where you're supposed to do it. So that when it comes time to competition, there'll be more confidence built up. There'll be more trust from coach to athlete built and athlete to athlete built. And so everyone shows up more present, less in the future, less in the past, and able to maximize their performance, you know, the way that they've practiced it to be. Yes. I always say when practice is hard, competition is easy. And when practice is easy, competition is hard. So how can we make practice harder today? You mentioned um, being present, how I think being present is very important when it comes to not only enjoying the process, but also during competition, during a performance being present. What advice could you give coaches who are trying to get their team to be more present during their performances? Well, presence evokes presence. 
right? So the more present the coach is, the more present the team's going to be. But breath work is one of the most simple, most effective, free things that any team can do. And so a simple mindfulness breathing practice of being aware of your breath, slowing down your breath, speeding up your breath, depending on what energy and what mental state you're looking for is a, is a psychological, physiological uh, strategy to place the athlete where they need to be so that they can go out and have fun, perform at the highest level, whatever that is for them, or just feel more connected to the team. So breath work is definitely one. Uh, practicing uh, very chaotic environments in practice. So like one of the things that I've done is playing loud music, different types of music, maybe even multiple speakers in practice to simulate crowd noise, to simulate uh teams talking, right? And and having the team focus on communicating one-on-one, whether that's talking about something and taking notes, if that's just making eye contact, or if that's actually trying to learn a routine while that background noise is playing to learn how to dial that out and tune in to what's important. And all that is skill building. Like being present is a skill. It's not just something you're born with. And there are things that bring us into the present, like danger, where you're not focused on what you're eating for dinner if someone's trying to punch you in the face, right? But then you could also train yourself to be present because of the level of importance you're giving to the situation. And so if performance is fun, if performance is a chance to showcase your work, if performance is a chance to be unified with the people that you care so deeply about and trust on another level outside of anyone else in your life, then naturally that's going to bring more presence too. So I think it's meaning of what the occasion is. And then also like exercises, like what I just mentioned that could help build the skill. Yeah. Um, an exercise that you've done with my team that we utilize a lot, actually, you talked about the energy states and that physiological state and like getting, you said, using breath work, either to increase your breathing or decrease your breathing. Something you've done with my team that we utilize a lot is, um, identifying where their peak physiological state is. And then when we're backstage, especially at nationals, cause you have like 15, 20 minutes on deck waiting to go on is I'll create two groups and I'll say, and this came from you. Um, you know, if you need to decrease your physiological state, you need to slow down your breathing and slow down your heart rate to be at your best, come over in this group and we're going to do some slow breaths together. If you need to elevate it and you need to like get hype and you need to, you know, increase the heart rate, increase the breathing and get super excited. I want you to go over there. And so, and so I want you to lead that group. And so we'll split up and the group who performs best, super hype, gets hype, the team, the group that needs to who gets together <laughs> and um, we get them in that state. And so I want to thank you for that. That's something you brought to our team that we use almost every single competition. Um, yeah. And then also another thing we use that you brought to us that I think can be a tool for our listeners is you mentioned replicating the physiological state that you're in when you do step on stage at competition, which typically is a, you're a little bit nervous, you're a little bit excited. So your heart rate does go up, your breathing does go up and you'll have, you'll have the team replicate that by just jogging in place, right? Getting the heart rate up, getting the breathing up and then doing the routine because then we're more accurately simulating yes. what they're actually going 
to be feeling. Right. And so that's it's be- thank you. Beautiful. I'm so glad you're using this. There's a lot of things that I want to like commend you for. One is separating it into two groups. A lot of times coaches will assume that everyone wants to be amped or everyone wants to slow down, but you give them the option, which is really beautiful. And it creates a level of like, you're, you're, you're specializing it to what the individual needs, right? And that just creates much more ease as opposed to someone who wants to slow down, but feels like they have to speed up, which creates unnecessary anxiety or unnecessary nerves that don't need to be there. So kudos. The second thing is the heart rate is this, these types of exercise require a coach to think through every step of the process in competition and what that athlete's going to go through and say, okay, there's going to be a lot of noise. It's going to be a lot of heart rate. There's going to be long wait periods. How can I begin to work that into practice so that when they go through it, it's not so foreign. They already have that exposure. So there's already going to be built in confidence into the process because you've already thought through all of those kind of like barriers to entry. So that backstage process now, because you've created so many great strategies and practice is going to feel so much more seamless, freeing up time and energy to have fun and reflect on how beautiful this journey has been leading up to the two minute capstone on the season. Yeah. Um, This is so good. I'm just like sitting back and taking it all in. I hope everyone listening is probably doing the same thing. Is there any other like pre-competition like rituals that you would suggest or you like to do um, with teams? Yeah, I like um, there's this tapping technique that I learned. I think it was from Brandon Bouchard. But it, you you basically cup your hands, like two hands cupped together, and then you start tapping on your body all over, like from your ankles to your calves, to your knees, to your quads, your hamstrings, butt, everything, all the way up to the top of your head. And that can last anywhere from a minute to two minutes. But what you're doing is you're stimulating the nervous system and activating like all the muscle tissue to be kind of prepared, you know, and Anytime the body gets some sort of sensation, it's going to react to that sensation. So you're basically tapping everything alive. And afterwards, a lot of athletes will report like a tingly kind of more present sensation. And it's just a cool way of, of, you know, capturing the nerves that maybe one athlete is, is experiencing, channeling that into movement and, and intentionally cupping the body in a way of like priming someone, priming themselves to go out there and perform. So it's channeling energy, it's intentionalizing that energy, and then it's placing that energy on the body, which I think is a cool kind of just a, another mindfulness practice to kind of get everybody grounded, ready, and and prepared. I want to kind of move forward in uh, your working with teams and you worked with Brie and they've had great success and there's, you know, these great techniques, but can you tell us of a team that you've worked with or a dancer or a coach that you've really had a breakthrough and just seen transformation happen and kind of give us the insight of what you've seen and how that program has grown because of their their time with you and their intentions. Yeah. 
I mean, every team that I work with has some form of breakthrough because every, every team always has new athletes and with those new athletes come new breakthroughs, right? But I think the most recent one that I can think of is Boise State University. Uh, before we started working together, there was a desire, I'm speaking specifically for the dance team, there was a desire to want to be good, but the work ethic and the grit, the grittiness was not there. And so the first year that I went there and worked with them, within the second session, we did like monthly sessions, I'd fly out every month and work with them for three or four hours. And the second one, we're doing some physical exercises and I'm just sensing like, there, there wasn't that like, I wanna do one more. It was like, are we done yet? kind of vibe right and so they were running this lap and i'm when i when they when teams run laps i'm always looking for how much space is in between each athlete as they're running that lap because it signals a few things one it signals the how good of shape the team's in two is how close are they because if they're closer they're going to be more cl like close together if they're not as close they're going to be more separated so they were more separated and they were kind of like in completely different physical shapes, right? And after they were done with their lap, which was a long, long lap, I go, you guys are soft. Like straight up soft. And you want to place high at nationals, but this is not the attitude that's going to get you there. Like you can't be wondering when you're done. You need to be thinking how much like, how much more I got, like, let's, let's give me more. Right. And, and so once that was called out, like it hit and they're like, Oh man, like, damn, we're soft. But what that did, that level of honesty, the next time I saw them, it was a completely different team. The coach was like, what happened? Like, who are you guys? And they placed, I think fourth, I want to say in the nation that, that year. And came on the scene and last year like blew everybody out of the water to the point where like they're they're known around the country now and it's it just started from a level of honesty around where they were at and the the like just the piercing truth of like you think you're up here but you're not and I've worked with enough teams to know what it takes you don't have it right now you can you can have it but you don't have it and so every time we meet, this is what I expect. I expect this, I expect this, I expect this. And they said yes. And every practice, every time I met with them, they got better and better and better. So now it's a completely different culture. And everyone on that team is, is just, when you look at them now, when I, like I just can't, went to see uh, work with their cheer team this past weekend, and I saw the dance team and the way they're connected, the way they look at coach, the way they accept feedback, how they practice, completely different program. Yeah. I've seen that transformation with them, not just on the national stage, but as you know, I had an alumni who was a part of that program. And so she has come back and been like, wow, James has absolutely completely transformed this program and what its future looks like. So kudos to you. That's, and you do that, not with just Boise, you, every team that works with you experiences some type of transformation, some type of breakthrough, not only on the team level, but you do a really good job of in individually helping people with breakthroughs as well. So 
And so it blows my mind when coaches, when I, I mention like, I'll bring you up or just mental performance coaching in general. And they're like, oh yeah, we don't have time for that. And I, my immediate response is always, you don't have time not to do that. Like, <laughs> but I normally bite my tongue. Um, it's just something that's new in our industry. Why, why do you think some coaches are resistant to hiring out peak performance coaches? Oh man. Let me think about that for a second. I don't know if it's just like, I, I think they just don't get it as a part of it. Yeah. I, I think, I think there's like, there's a, there it's, there's, it's multifaceted, right? I think there's a level of control there where they're the coach and what they say goes and maybe not wanting an outside influence to change what maybe they've worked so hard to create or, you know, for the alliance of, of the team to shift to this individual as opposed to the coach. Um, I think that that could be something. I also know that the coaches that are more open to, to working with myself are, are people who believe in like therapy or they, they are constantly learning things from other teams or from conferences or from, you know, they have just a more growth mindset overall. And, and they want, they don't just want to win. They want to prepare their athletes for something bigger. And that level of mindset requires a coach to get out, to get outside of their role. It's easy as a coach to just think of yourself as a coach. But if you look at yourself as an educator, as a teacher, a coach, uh, a mentor, then you broaden your impact and then you realize that, yes, you're creating so much impact on these young athletes' lives, but you can also bring someone in to further that impact. And so then it becomes bigger than dance. And so I just think the teams that aren't as open to that are, are just more closed. They, they, haven't, they don't know anyone really that's doing it. It could be potentially budget. Um, but I think it's more of a limiting story on their end of like, they have to do it all. They don't want to admit that they need help. They like the control and maybe they don't understand the ROI or the benefit of it because no one's ever put it in the words that they need to hear, or they just haven't seen enough evidence from their peers. Yeah, hundred percent. Uh, so going off of that, so let's say a team or a coach wants to hire you what can they expect? Like, what's the process look like? Because maybe we, we said there's some, there's that resistance or that fear of like, well, how do I, how do I hire you? And what does that look like? And most coaches have to then sell that to their athletic director or whoever is in charge of the program. So what can they expect to work with you? Like, what does that process look like? Take us through it. I think it depends on where the team's at, right? There's a couple of different options. Like what Boise does is I fly out every month. So we do four, four sessions with the cheer team, four sessions with the dance team. So over the course of eight months, I'm going out there eight times. That's one option. With Seton or University of Cincinnati, uh, it could be you know a summer session for the leaders specifically and the new form team. And then a two-day experience somewhere in the middle of the season, usually after they get their nationals choreo. Um, 
And then, so let's just go with what most teams do initially. They usually do some sort of two day, one day or two day deep dive where I fly out and work with the team for three to four hours day one and potentially three to four hours on day two. But in that time frame, depending on the challenges that the team is facing, there is uh, a, there's basically leadership skills being taught. So how to communicate with one another, how to deliver feedback, how to get past mental and emotional blocks or barriers, uh, and instill strategies that, that the athlete individually and collectively as a team could continue to use throughout the season, resulting in a better performance at nationals. Um, there's a la carte services where I can work with the coaches solely. I could work with the leadership team solely. It just, it honestly depends on where the budget is for the team, what the problems are and how deep they want to go. Some people don't trust the process yet and they want to see kind of what the first thing's going to be. And then once that happens, they'll open themselves up to more, which every time a team does one thing, they always do multiple things <laughs> year after year. So you know, it depends on your kind of risk tolerance, I guess, but expect like a workshop based experience where athletes are talking to each other. I'm teaching through slide and also through like dance. I'll have them go through their choreo. We'll work through adjustments that could be made, not necessarily on, on like what movements to do, but how those movements are expressed, how the athlete thinks affects how that movement gets expressed collectively and individually. So there's lessons being taught on the mat, in the classroom, and about overall life that gives the the person who's experiencing it just a, a holistic skill set to help them be better athletes and better leaders in the future. I love how that something that you do that is so awesome. It's you tailor it to every single team. It starts with having the conversation with the coach and like what's going on in the team, but then you kind of come in with a plan, but then that plan can maybe shift based on like what you see and hear. It always shifts. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like you walk in, like you and I've had conversations where you're like, I think I'm going to like go this route. And then I'll like, Oh, how'd it go? And you're like, Oh, it went completely a different way. And, yes. but like, that's, that's what's unique is that every single team is unique and you're not walking in with the, here's my platter. Here's my presentation. Here's the handouts. See you later. Collect my check. You're not going to each team, giving them the same exact thing. You're going to each team and giving them what they need. And that's right. That's right. that is Thank what's you. different about you. I think of, um, like bring it on the guy that like gives everyone the same choreography. What's his name? Bree? Is it Sparky or? I don't know his name. Like, I was just going to say Spirit Fingers is all I know. <laughs> yeah. But he like goes down. I just think of that movie where he like goes and gives every single team the same choreography. And, um, but like, that's not what you are. You're going in and saying, okay, what does this team need to get to the next step, to get to the next yeah. level? And that's, I think worth every investment, anything. And like Brie, like you're a public high school. You're not like a private high school, you know, like you're a public high school. You have athletic directors, you have real kids and real budgets. And yet you find a way to bring James in and work with your team. You make it work. You find the way you do the extra fundraising. 
Um, and so I think that is just really important that, like you said, Brie, like you can't afford not to, like not to have some kind of mental performance training in these, especially nowadays to be at the top. Yeah. I appreciate that. And it is true. Like my prep notes are like a page and a half in Google Docs. I have stories I want to tell. I have exercises I want to do. I have concepts I want to go over. I have pain points that I've understood from the coach. I have what I anticipate might be the issues. And I have all that laid out. So I'm not walking in not prepared. I'm walking in prepared, but not married to any of it. And that flexibility allows me to plug and play depending on what the environment is giving me and where the athletes are. Because not most of the time, the coach's feedback on the team is just part of the problem, right? The coach can only see so much. And, and this, the athletes will sometimes only open up so much to the coach, restricting the amount of information the coach gets. So I can't solely rely on the perspective of the coach until I get in the environment and see the dynamics of the team first. So that's where the openness needs to be a part of it because if I just believe the coach on everything, usually the coaches need more work <laughs> than the athletes. But if I just believe the coaches, then now I'm assuming and that assumption can blind me from what is actually happening that the coach has no idea about, that the athletes may, may or may not have an idea about. And now we can actually address the root problem as opposed to a Band-Aid issue that could then resurface as something different later on. Absolutely. And I remember one time you were working with a program and I had some insider information that I was like, Hey, before you go, just letting you know, so-and-so who's a part of, you know, whatever part they were on the team, um, this is their perspective. And I, I think if I remember right, it was very different than the perspective you got from the coach. And it led to exactly what you said though. Sometimes the coaches need just as much work as the team. Um, and on that note, if, for any coach who is looking to elevate their team personally, team-wise, the whole thing, do you have, what is one foundational book that you would recommend they read first? A good coach book, team book, culture book, peak performance book. I know there are probably so many going through your head. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to hear this answer. Hmm. Okay, fine. I'll let you do three. Now I have now I have pressure of having to choose the right one. I've I okay. Let me think about. Let me look at my list here. Hold on. I think I think one book that I think would be really really beneficial for any coach, and it's not just sports specific. It's uh, what is it called? Difficult conversations. Um, mm. and it's by it's like three Harvard professors or, or three prof professors that worked in Harvard business school or whatever. And they built, they, they wrote this book around hard conversations and it's the three conversations that we're all having in our own heads when having a hard conversation. So that's just helpful to have a useful framework around what may be going on in the athlete's head and also what's going on in your head to minimize distortion of information, which increases accuracy of what's actually being delivered. So I like, I give, I gift that book. I, I, I mentioned that book a lot. Um, there is the, uh, a book called the talent code, which talks about how the myelin sheath and the body gets trained over time and how all these professional athletes started off super young, but they also started in cultures and, and ecosystems where 
they were trained on certain like physical things like repetition, repetition, repetition. So I think as a coach, understanding how these like prodigies or these like really well-known famous athletes have started at a young age training in a certain way, I think that would be helpful infusing that type of philosophy or that type of ideology into the training of the team. Uh, and if I were to actually, you know what, there is one. Um, it's a Brene Brown. It's a Brene Brown book. Um, it's a short one. Natasha, you might know the name of it. No, how to lead. No, Uh, it's one of her first ones. Uh, I got you. Uh, gifts of imperfection. That's it. Yeah. Okay. I think that's just a helpful, (laughs) helpful one to be able to work through like emotion and uh, just understand how what you're feeling doesn't last forever, which is critical. But if you do experience these things, here are some practical ways of dealing with it. So I'd start there. That that one, Gifts of Imperfection, I read almost yearly. Um, that just reminded me, like, I should kind of get that out right about now and read it again. But it's a book that – it's a short book. I almost call it like a pamphlet of life. <laughs> it's your Basically. it's your guide of life. But um, because in you can reread something, but it hits you different depending on where you're at in life and what mm-hmm. you're going through. And I think that that's really important. I was uh, wondering if you were going to say culture code. I thought about that. Yeah. I think that's helpful too. I also think the stress less accomplish more. The book on meditation is also a phenomenal book that changed my mind on meditation and resulted in a whole year long commitment of meditating almost every day. I think I, out of 365 days, I think I hit 357, like because of that book. Yeah. That's awesome. Did you say the first one was difficult yeah. conversations, so, how to discuss what matters most? Is that that one? That's it. Yeah. By Douglas Stone. Okay. Yep. Cool. Wonderful. Stress less, accomplish more is one that I've gifted and recommended to so many people. And I don't think anyone's read it yet. <laughs> Girl, I've read that one. That's a good one. That's one of my first books. I think James, you told me, well, besides gifts of imperfection, I think that one was like either my first book with you or my second book with you. And it definitely mm-hmm. is a game changer. Like meditate almost every day. Like did it yeah. today. So final question. We always end every podcast with the same one. And it is, what do you want your legacy to be? When you're done doing coaching and you're 120 years old and you you clock out for that last time, what do you want your legacy to be? I think it goes to my brand. Like be that 1%, which basically is associated with like two things, love and growth. Like love what you do. Ideally love the people that you do it with and pursue growth because with growth comes progression. With growth comes working through the unknown, which is basically every moment outside of this moment. And I, and I think it's such a healthy antidote to anxiety, depression, you know, some of these funky states that we can get ourselves in just over the course of our life. If we become growth oriented, we reframe how we think about what happens to us and we focus more on the process as opposed to the outcome, which process is all there is. The illusion is that the outcome is going to make us or help us feel a certain way. And it's not, it's only a temporary thing. 
the process is all there is. So if I could fall in love with the process and the process is always rooted in growth, built out of love, I think that's just a winning formula. Beautiful. 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 Uh, mm-hmm. How can, if anyone wants to work with you, uh, reach out to you, message you, talk to you, how do they do that? <laughs> yeah. Um, a couple ways. One, you could reach out to Brie or Natasha if, if that's one way. Another way is Instagram, you know, James underscore Silvis. I'm on Instagram and mostly, but I have TikTok, Facebook that I just post on, but I'm not super active on. I have a um, podcast, so be that 1%. Uh, it's on iTunes and Spotify. You could listen to that if you want additional just insights on life and communication, leadership, mindset. Uh, or you can email me at james at silvaspeaks.com. And, and that's two S's in the middle, S-I-L-V-A-S speaks.com. And I will get back to you and see how I can serve you, your team, and help you and your team become a better version or, you know, reach a new level. Every new level has a new devil. Ah, there it is. That's so potent. <laughs> well, thank you, James, so much. I, this, every single, we have a thing on here and it's Mark Clip and I keep, so that we can promote little bits of it. I'm like, Mark Clip, Mark Clip, Mark Clip. The whole world needs to hear this. Every coach needs to hear this. Every athlete needs to hear this. So I cannot wait to share this episode and get even just the bits of knowledge we have in here, which is even just such a small percentage of everything that you have and you bring out to the world. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to beyond the Marley podcast. Follow us on Instagram at beyond the Marley for more dance team content.